Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. I also plan to spend some time in Isaiah, so you could slip a piece of paper or something in Isaiah 7, right around there, because we'll, we'll flip back and forth a few times between the two parts of Scripture, Isaiah 7, but we'll, we'll spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this is obviously an extremely well-known passage of Scripture, uh, and I would like to read it for us. I'm going to start with the last verse of Scott's text from last Sunday, with the genealogy, and we will go through the end of chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, I've titled the sermon very simply, Jesus Saves. That is what His name means, Yahweh Saves, Yeshua. And I have three points, and it's going to take me a minute before I get to these three points, but if you want to go ahead and jot down an outline here, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Three points, Jesus saves because He is number one. So Jesus saves because He is number one, the Son of David. Jesus saves because He is, number two, virgin-born, and Jesus saves, number three, because He is Emmanuel. Jesus saves because He's the Son of David, number one, number two, virgin-born, and number three, Emmanuel. Now, it'll take just a moment before we get into these points here. I want instead to start this story and try to put a little bit of flesh on a familiar story. Uh, Luke's uh, account of the Christmas story, which uh, Scott preached on last year, uh, was uh, more from the perspective of Mary. We just heard a little bit of it just now, but more from the perspective of Mary. And Matthew's Christmas story is more from the perspective of Joseph. I don't know if you've ever really thought of it that way, but Matthew is definitely written from Joseph's perspective of the events, and Luke is definitely written from Mary's perspective. So it's interesting to see how these two different stories uh, work together. Now, I want you to picture here, we, we don't know, you know, it's only a bit of conjecture, but very likely Joseph and Mary were both teenagers at the time. Uh, Joseph was almost certainly a few years older than Mary. Mary could have been as young as 14 or 15, maybe 16 years old. Joseph could have been 18 to 20, right around that age. It's hard to know exactly, but we're dealing with two teenage believers. And that should just remind us when we read this story, that's amazing. The kind of faith on display in both of these two individuals is astonishing. Now, there is no question that 
uh, in church history, uh, there has been an over-elevation of, for instance, Mary in parts of the church in, in church history, but I, I don't want to minimize Joseph and Mary either. I don't want to be guilty of minimizing them. They, they are great examples of, of strong faith in the early years. So for teenagers in the room or listening online, uh, don't let this sermon anyway get past you because this sermon is for you in particular. It's for all of us, but it is especially for younger believers in their life. Now, Joseph is engaged to Mary. He's betrothed. Betrothal in this time period was a very big deal. Now, engagement's a big deal now. I understand that. But then to break off an engagement was actually to go through a legal divorce so that you, you could not just break off an engagement. Like today, engagement is a big commitment, but it's not the same as marriage. And it wasn't, it wasn't the same exactly as marriage, but it was legally binding. And it would have taken a divorce for, for Joseph to separate from Mary at this point. Another thing that's interesting, we're used today of couples being probably alone more than they should be during the dating and engagement years, but in this time period, it was unheard of that Joseph and Mary would have spent extensive time alone. As best we can tell from history, especially the history of the Galilean area, you've got Nazareth up in that area, as we study best we can, what we learn is that engaged couples would, would not be left without supervision at all times. And if you look back at that and say, that seems so outdated and, and backwards, think about how they might look at how we do things. And, Let's think about who might have some wisdom to offer us in this particular thing. So they, they actually would have a lot of uh, adult supervision. Parents would be present. But, um, so we actually don't know how well Joseph and Mary would have known each other, but they certainly would have, would have known each other to some extent at this point. And uh, somehow, we don't get the details. We know from Luke that Mary gets visited from the angel Gabriel, is told that she will become pregnant of the Holy Spirit. She will have this son who is going to be the Messiah. And yet, isn't it amazing to you? amazing part of the Christmas story, and I want to say amazing and an awkward part of the Christmas story. The angel did not show up to Joseph at the same time. So Mary is left believing the angel. You know, she asks, how can this be? But she trusts the angel. She believes the Lord, which is astonishing for a 15-year-old Christian girl or 16-year-old girl. Amazing faith. She then has to go tell Joseph what happened. And Joseph is, you know, Joseph is, is hearing her story, and he's going, ah, okay, an angel appeared to you, and the Holy Spirit of God is going to make you, you're going to be, you, you're going to be, okay, you're pregnant now, and this, it's the son of God, it's the son of David, yeah, okay, so Joseph has to go off, and he has to make a decision based on her story. And he goes, listen, Mary seems honest and sweet. She seems to have integrity. I would not have expected her to be unfaithful to me. This doesn't fit her character at all. But clearly, she has been unfaithful to me. And she's made up this absurd story, even invoking God's very character to perhaps even blaspheming God to cover up what she's done of promiscuity. This is not good. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, had in mind to separate from her, to divorce her quietly. And so he says, listen, th th this kind of unfaithfulness uh, is not going to be good. And so he's going to separate from Mary. And there's this period of time. We don't know if it was days, if even weeks went by. Not a long time probably, but Joseph is thinking through these things and what he is going to do. Look with me back at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just, again, let me put a piece of application at the very beginning of this sermon. Th these are teenage believers. At oldest, Joseph is in his early 20s. I mean, at, at the oldest. But these are probably teenage believers. And they are being sexually pure in the time of their engagement in a way that is commendable and an example to all of us in this room. 
We, we live in a culture that is awash in all kinds of sexual impurity and sexual uh, sin. And it just, it's everywhere you look. And for teenagers to be able to stay faithful to God, listen, it really is possible by God's strength that we can fight these temptations and not let them have control over us. For, for those who have sexual sin in their past, you heard last Sunday, God has not forgotten you. Remember, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, is in Jesus' family line. Jesus chose his family line intentionally with a prostitute in, in one part with Rahab and then also uh, Tamar. Remember that horrific story. And so Jesus chooses that. So he's saying, I came for the worst of the worst, but also those who truly trust me, there will be a transformation of life. As has been said, it's not the perfection of the life, but the change of direction of the life, I've heard said. And, and that is true. And God really can give grace to fight these temptations and to maintain purity by His grace. And when there is a failure, there is grace and forgiveness. But God has powerful grace that is at work in our lives. Joseph is obedient, pure, righteous, and merciful all in this little story, right? He's being merciful to Mary despite he, he thinks her infidelity. He's going to divorce her quietly. He doesn't want to subject her to unnecessary public disgrace. He is righteous and obedient to what God tells him to do, and he wants to maintain purity in the relationship. This is a godly man. Joseph should be an example to every young man or older man in this room. He, is, he has the kind of character that, that should mark all of our lives as godly men and godly leaders. And for Mary here also, you see this tremendous example of trust and faith in God despite him asking her to go. L let's be honest. Is Mary going to en endure some, some unpleasant comments and some disbelief about how she got pregnant for the rest of her life? Yes. And in that culture, it would be far worse than even in our culture today. So, so the very fact that God has put her in this position where she is a teenage, a pregnant single girl, not yet married, and she's carrying this baby determined, she's going to give birth to this child, there's going to be a stigma attached to her that I think we hear echo way later, 30 years later, when Jesus is having a confrontation with the Pharisees and their leaders in Jerusalem, and what happens in John chapter 8, the, the, the religious leaders are insulting Jesus, and what do they figure out for their insult? We were not born of sexual immorality. Why would they say that in a conversation with the virgin-born Jesus? I think they'd heard about the so-called virgin birth, and they were making a mockery of it. Listen, we, our parents were together when we were born. I don't know about you, Jesus. They are, they, are, they are pushing that towards Jesus. So there was going to be a public scandal attached to what Mary was called to go through by the Lord, and she goes through this all faithfully. Let's continue here. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, so time did go by, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This appearance by the angel... Oh, listen, this happens to all of us. We make our plans, don't we? We all have our plans. You, you, we all know how we want the next five years to look like, don't we? We know how we want the next 15 years, the next 30 years to look like in our lives. We have this sort of tentative plan, and we say that it's, you know, ultimately the Lord's will be done, but there's a part of us that really wants our way. 
Surely I'm not the only one who struggles with this, okay? If I'm the lone person, please help me here. But that, that's the way we are. And Joseph had a plan. And the plan involved Mary, and it involved marrying her, and it involved starting a family, and this was his plan. And suddenly, in a moment, that plan was shattered in front of him as he finds out she's pregnant. Doesn't make any sense. His plans are shattered. And he goes through this time of spiraling, probably, to some degree. And yet the Lord appears to him and gives him another plan, a plan that goes beyond anything he could have ever imagined. And so what Joseph shows us is this. He's an example of someone who is holding his plans. Yes, he, he sees them, but he holds them, and he ultimately has an open hand around them, and he allows the Lord to be sovereign even when it is upsetting, unexpected, or even, at times, beyond his wildest dreams, what the Lord is calling him to. But he is flexible to the calling of the Lord. We'll see in the next couple weeks how he has to keep making adjustments as things go on. But Joseph is faithfully following the Lord in, in this. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now that really is, I know it's a lot, that's really introduction to the main point of the sermon today. I want to now get to the main point of the sermon, which is Jesus himself and his name, meaning that he will save his people from their sins. I want to start with number one in my outline here, Jesus saves because he is the son of David. And, and for, uh, bear with me here as I, I repeat a couple things Scott already said last Sunday, but just think through this, keep it fresh in your mind. When the Bible begins, it is the third chapter when we sin, third chapter. And in that third chapter in the 15th verse, Genesis 3.15, the gospel is stated for the first time in human history, and we are told the serpent, Satan, is going to go to war against the children of Eve, her offspring, and we are told that Eve's offspring, her seed, is going to go to battle personally with Satan, and he will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will, what, strike, bruise his heel. This is a picture that there's a coming promised descendant of Eve who is going to come fight Satan, destroy Satan, defeat the works of the devil, and to bring the world back to how it was always supposed to be. He will recreate the world. There will be a new creation and a new heavens and a new earth. And the whole book of Genesis, I remember when this first hit me studying Genesis, it blew my mind. I've been familiar with Genesis my whole life, as numbers of you have, and we know the stories, but it first dawned on me reading Genesis that the book is truly not this is not put on the text. Genesis is actually structured following that line of descendancy from Eve. This serpent crusher, where is he? And it passes from Eve through Noah to Abraham. And we're told that Abraham is going to have many offspring, but those offspring are going to do what? They're going to bless the nations. And those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And we're told that through this offspring of Abraham, God's going to bless the nations. So the serpent crusher is a descendant of Abraham. And we trace it through Isaac and Jacob. And then of the 12 sons, Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then through Judah, you get the line of David. And David is of the Davidic line, but then Solomon. And on it goes until finally, when the kingdom looks like it's been destroyed, and there's no kingdom left, and the, 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 you know, the person who's supposed to be king right now is a guy named Joseph, who's a carpenter. Not much of a king, is he? They have no political freedom. Rome is over them, on their neck, and here they are. And Joseph looks like an absolute commoner. He's supposed to be in the line of David, this king, and, and God is going to bring out of the dust and ashes of the Davidic kingdom, He's going to bring the true son of David, 
the true righteous king who is going to go to battle with Satan, not with a sword. He's going to go to battle with Satan through his death on the cross, and he's going to defeat Satan by paying for our sin, and he's going to rise triumphant over the dead. And this promised Davidic king is a human being. He's the son of David. He must be like us to stand in our place. He is the son of David, the promised human seed. Just flip back to Isaiah, if you have Isaiah there. Flip back to Isaiah, and I want to look at a few quick verses. I can only do the most superficial overview of this that I, I can really imagine, but if Isaiah 6, many of us know that chapter. I want to look at the very end of Isaiah 6 first. We are told that when Isaiah preaches, what's going to happen? The cities are going to be destroyed, that they are going to be absolutely cut down like a forest that is leveled to the ground and only stumps remain. Now, just follow me here. This, this word picture is interesting. So the people of Israel are like a giant forest, and God is going to mow the forest down, cut down the trees with foreign armies, Assyria and Babylon, and all that's going to be left of the Davidic kingdom is a stump of Jesse. Jesse's dad, David's dad. So the, 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 the Davidic kingdom is nothing but a, a giant, it was a giant tree, it gets cut down by exile and by Babylon, and there's nothing left but a stump, a smoldering stump. What could possibly come from this? And you, you see it here in Isaiah 6, 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now do you see that? The promised seed is left here, the Davidic kingdom, it's just this stump. Now turn with me to chapter 9 of Isaiah. You'll see this theme recurring. I won't read the whole text. You know 6 through 7, but a child is born. The government will be on his shoulders. He's called Mighty God, and the throne of David is given to him. Now turn to chapter 11 of Isaiah. The same exact stump is picked up again. Look at Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is the Lord Jesus. But I want you to see something interesting as well. Hold your spot here and turn to Isaiah 53, a passage that I think most of us know well. Isaiah 53. As you turn there, do you notice there in Isaiah 11, we're told that the root of the stump of Jesse, did you see that word root is used? He will come from the root. That same word root is going to be used right here in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 2 about this promised suffering servant of the line of David, 53.2. Here's what it says about him. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a, same Hebrew word, root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, do you see? This son of David is going to be the suffering servant out of the root of the stump of Jesse who's going to come and stand in our place and die for our sin. And clearly, that refers to Jesus. Now, stay in Isaiah. I want to go to our second point. Turn back to Isaiah 7. Second point. So, number one, Jesus says because he is the son of David. He is the promised human seed of David who will bear our sins in his body on the tree. Number two, Jesus saves because he is virgin born. Now, I will grant you here that this is a little confusing. If, if you're not already a little confused, it's about to become even more confusing. Are you ready? You, you, don't, you don't sound ready. Are you ready? Okay. All right. So, um, let, let me just try real quick. I want to give a little bit, this is, this is, this is, this is a little hard to follow, okay? 
I want to give the background to the famous, the virgin will conceive verse. It's very rare that people actually talk about the background of this verse, and I want to say a few things about it uh, before uh, finishing this point. So, in Isaiah chapter 7, there's this complicated text, but I just want to try to simplify it. Let me see if this, if, the, if you can, okay, you may not be able to read this map, I, it's fine if you cannot, but I want to use this map just briefly to try to explain what is happening in Isaiah 7. Okay, so you start with, you have the southern kingdom down here at the bottom of the screen, where King Ahaz is, which is in blue, and then in red, you have the northern kingdom just above him, uh, and you have, um, you have uh, Pekah, who's the king there. Then above him, you have Syria, with this king named Reza, who's up there. Syria. Now, follow me for a second. In Isaiah 7, this is taking place in like the 730s BC, okay? There's a rumor that the king of that blue kingdom at the bottom, Judah, he, Ahaz, he finds out about something. Syria, this kingdom way up north, and Israel are joining forces to come down, and they're going to attack Judah. So they, the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, the kingdom above that, are teaming up to destroy Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. And the king of the southern kingdom is Ahaz. He's going, this does not look good for me. This is not good. So Ahaz sins. Now, that's all Ahaz seemed to do in his life was sin. But he sins right here. And he says, no, I'm not going to trust God to deliver me. I am going to turn to the world superpower of my day, Assyria, and I'm going to ask Assyria to come to my aid. I'm going to ask Syria to come behind and to destroy these, the Syrians and to come destroy the southern kingdom. Is everybody still with me here? So he's going to ask Assyria to come down and to destroy those two kingdoms. And so he is planning according to human reason, not according to divine reason, okay? He's not trusting God. He's going to make it happen on his own. And so while he's down there in the southern kingdom planning his plan, God sends the prophet Isaiah to go speak to Ahaz and say, Ahaz, the Lord will deliver you and he wants you to ask for a sign. And Ahaz puts on fake religious language and goes, I don't want to test the Lord my God and ask for a sign. Well, he wouldn't be testing him. The Lord asked him for a sign. So it's, it wouldn't be wrong to say, yes, give me a sign. So the Lord says, okay, you can reject my sign. I'm still going to give you a sign. Look with me here, Isaiah 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. He's the king of that southern kingdom. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, Oh, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little uh, for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey while he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as has, have not come since the day that Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, departed from Judah, that's the southern kingdom. He's bringing who? The king of Assyria. And then he says the king of Assyria is actually going to, just follow me still, the king of Assyria, it's this plan for you to trust the Assyrians up, up north is going to backfire on you. Because not only are the Assyrians this group right here. Not only are they going to destroy this kingdom, Syria, and destroy the northern kingdom, they're also going to come for you too, okay? So you're trusting in them. They're going to destroy your enemies, but they're also going to try to kill you in the process. This is what happens when you trust in man's plans, not in God's plans. Everybody follow that? Now, the sign. This gets controversial. Hang with me here. The sign of the virgin who will conceive and bear a son. If you read verse 14, 15, 16 in a row, it sounds like the son is born at the time of Ahaz. Look at verse 16, for before the boy, that's the boy I think born here, the sign, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the sign gets fulfilled when this boy, this child, this sign is born, and before he's very old, what happens? 
the two kingdoms above him, Israel and Syria, are going to be destroyed. Now, the question then is, how does this have to do with Jesus? Are you following? What does this have to do with Jesus? And then in chapter 8, we're told Isaiah has a son named, verse 3, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. I just have to tell you, Kelly named one of our cats that. <laughs> Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. It means quick to the spoil. Perfect name for a cat, huh? We called him Hashbaz. So Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is the name of Isaiah's son, born of him and the prophetess, his wife. Verse 4, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And then... Verse 8, Assyria is going to sweep into Judah, overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck like a flood, and its outspread wings will uh, fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel, O God is with you. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. God is with us. Again, verse 14, and he will become, God will become a sanctuary that's a good thing, and a stone of offense, a bad thing, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Okay. Indulge me for a few minutes here as I try to explain what I think is going on in this passage. There are two kinds of fulfillments of Old Testament texts in the New Testament. There are two kinds. Well, there's probably more than two, but there's two big ones that I want to talk about. Okay, one is, let me get the wording correct here. One is predictive fulfillment. Predictive fulfillment, this is easy. This is like Micah 5.2. He will be born in Bethlehem. The, the, the prophet says something that is explicitly only talking about Jesus, and Jesus is the only person to fulfill it. It's a predictive prophecy. It has predictive fulfillment. This is about that one thing. It's just about Jesus. It's he's born in Bethlehem. That's easy. The king will come to you humble, riding on a colt right, on a donkey in Zechariah. That's clearly Jesus coming over the Mount of Olives the week of his death. But there's another kind that I find no less fascinating called typological fulfillment. So there's predictive fulfillment. This is clearly talking about one thing over here, and Jesus fulfills it. There is also typological fulfillment. What this means is this, okay? Typology is a fancy word to say God works. The same God in the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament, and God works in patterns, okay? And so patterns oftentimes repeat. That's what a pattern is. And as patterns repeat, they get ratcheted up with intensity, and finally, the greatest version of the pattern is fulfilled in its, not its type, but its antitype in Jesus. An example would be this. Noah's flood is a global judgment with God's people saved in a boat. Second, 1 Peter 3 says that corresponds to the gospel as the antitype. In other words, God's global judgment will be greater than the flood one day, and we will be saved not in an ark made of wood, but in Christ, our true Savior, right? That, that's a type and an antitype, okay? That's an Old Testament pattern and a New Testament fulfillment, okay? I'll give you another one. Romans 5 says Adam was a type, the Greek word is type. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam represented the whole human race. Adam was innocent. He was tested. When he failed the test, we fell in Adam. We inherited the guilt of Adam and the condemnation of Adam. Jesus is called a fulfillment of the type. He's the true and last Adam. Jesus is also innocent, but then he became righteous. He passed the test. When he died for our sins, he stood in our place. He saves all who will trust in him. That's type, okay, type and fulfillment. In this passage, I'm convinced that there is a double fulfillment going on. I believe in the day of Ahaz, 
There was an actual child born. It may have even been Isaiah's own child, Maharshal Hashbaz. And that child, before the child was old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good, uh, this child, before the child was old, God did what he said. He destroyed the two northern kingdoms by Assyria. He did exactly what he said. And the sign that God was with his people was the birth of this child. But here's the thing. With typology or with patterns, when patterns repeat, they intensify. And in the New Testament, get this, in Isaiah 7, no doubt this was a virgin, and she conceived the normal way virgins conceive, which is that she had relations with her husband and she gave birth to a child. But in Matthew 1, the type is greater than the than the Old Testament version. So what do you have? You don't just have a girl who was a virgin who then got pregnant the way all women get pregnant. No, you have a girl who was a virgin and became pregnant a way no one has ever become pregnant. She was actually a virgin at conception, and she was a virgin all the way through to the birth of the child. And you have all kinds of correspondences between these two texts. There is a pagan enemy nation in both texts, right? about to destroy Israel. One is Rome in the New Testament, one is Assyria and Syria in the Old Testament. In both texts, we are told that the sign of the child is a sign that God is going to be with His people. God was with His people in Isaiah's day, but not in the way He's with His people now. See, you have the type, God is with them, but then you have the fulfillment, which is greater. God's not just with them in some sort of spiritual sense or in the temple. God is with them literally. The child born is actually God in the flesh. It's not just a sign that God is with them. He is Himself God with us, and on and on it goes. And there are so many of these kinds of prophecies. We'll talk about a couple more in the Christmas story, where an Old Testament story or pattern is repeated in the ultimate way in Christ, and He is seen as the fulfillment. Now, if you say, why should I care about this technical typology stuff? I will tell you something. Oh, my goodness. When you start to discover how types and shadows in the Old Testament and patterns like the temple points to Jesus, or Solomon points to Jesus, or David points to Jesus, or the bread points to Jesus, or the light in the tabernacle points to the presence of God in Jesus, or on and on, the, the, the true Passover lamb points to Jesus, and on and on. When you start seeing how these types and shadows point to Jesus, the Old Testament op opens up to a Christian in a way that you cannot possibly understand until you've seen it for yourself. Because suddenly, Jesus' statements start making a lot of sense when He says things like this, one greater than the temple is here. What does that mean? It means I, Jesus, am like the temple in many ways. How did God dwell among His people? In the temple. How does He dwell among us now? In Christ. Christ is God's very presence. Not only is Jesus like the temple, but He is what? He's greater than the temple. That's typology. It's not just a, a, a similarity, but a greater than. Jesus said one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah is here. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will I, the Son of Man, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then I'm coming back to preach to Gentiles like the Ninevites and save the world. These are patterns. And what will happen is the Old Testament opens up and it is astonishing. The patterns in David's life and on and on that point forward to Jesus. In the book of Psalms, so many of, what's so many of the things happening to David are repeated in the life of Jesus. David is betrayed by a close friend who broke bread with him. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is betrayed by a close friend who broke bread with him. And on and on, these patterns and fulfillments find uh, fulfillment in Jesus. Quick personal story before I move to my last point. I was in Bible college uh, in 2007. I remember this very clearly. Early 2008, I think it was. I was struggling at times with how the New Testament quoted parts of the Old Testament. I couldn't quite figure out what was going on. And when this idea of typology was presented to me in, in one of my commentaries I was reading, it absolutely floored me. It absolutely blew me away. And I, I still to this day find it one of the most fascinating parts of studying the Bible, how the Old Testament uh, foreshadows Jesus Himself. 
All right, let's move, but we can turn back to Matthew chapter 1. So Jesus saves because he is the son of David, the human promised king from David's line who will bear our sins. Number two, he is virgin born. He is truly born of a virgin. He is truly um, here with us. And number three, Jesus saves because he is Emmanuel. You know, I left out one last point on that virgin birth. This is so important. Why was he born of a virgin? Because Jesus could not have a sin nature like we do. In the line of Adam and Eve, everyone born is born with a fallen sinful nature. Jesus had to be born spotless without a fallen nature. And so the virgin birth requires, I believe, him to be born to be truly human and yet not have Adam's fallen nature, to be, to be sinless, uh, which, which, which happens through the virgin birth. Okay, finally, number three, he saves us because he is Emmanuel, God with us. Look with me again at... Uh, Isaiah, uh, Matthew chapter 1, I'll read the last few verses, starting in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Only someone who was both truly human and truly divine could stand as a mediator between fallen humanity and a sinless and holy God. Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be the mediator between God and man, and he is the one mediator that we most desperately need. So let me draw this to a conclusion here. I remember, I think it was Spurgeon a long time ago saying, his very name means he will save his people from their sins. Do, do you feel discouraged by your own failures in your life morally? Do you feel like, how am I ever going to change? How am I ever going to be forgiven? Well, the very name, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. The very name Jesus has is the very name that means I am here for the very purpose of cleansing, forgiving, atoning for, propitiating your sins. I am here to get rid of it. As far as the east is from the west, I am here to remove your sins from you. His very name means he came to save people from their sins. Don't ever think your sin is going to create an ultimate barrier between you and Jesus if you will simply repent of your sin. His, his name means he is desirous to fulfill what he is called to do, which is to save his people from their sins. It is what he loves to do. It is what he delights to do. The Lord Jesus gets great glory when he does this, and we get great joy and satisfaction from him as he forgives our sins. So take your burdens, take your sins, and go to Jesus. He delights, he loves to take our sins from us and to atone for them with his blood. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that your name means that you will save your people from, your, from their sins, that you became sin for us. On the cross, you were counted sinful on our behalf so that we could be counted righteous on your behalf. And God, I do pray that we would be quick to take our failures to you, that we would be quick to, as Jerry says, to race to the cross that we would be quick to run to you for fresh mercy and grace for help in time of need. 
Lord, I, I pray that as we read your word, as we read your, your Old Testament, that we would see all these types and patterns and shadows that find ultimate expression and fulfillment in the Lord Jesus, and that we would glory in Christ in the Old Testament. And I pray as we read our New Testaments and see all these fulfillments of these promises and prophecies, that we would rejoice in what Christ has done, that we would delight in who Christ is and what He has done for us. And I pray now as we sing that we would worship You, as Jesus said, with spirit, in spirit, and in truth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.